Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Sunday after Thanksgiving, and Lord, we thank you uh, that we have been uh, given so many gifts to, to give thanks for, and Lord, we pray that we would not save that all for one day of the year, but would return thanks constantly in our prayers, and that Lord, we would pray without ceasing, and we pray as we continue to dive into the inexhaustible topic, the question of what is God, that Lord, you would uh, help us to light on some important truths. Uh, truths that, that those of us here in this room need to, to hear and be reminded of, that, Lord, we would uh, come to know you and appreciate you and to love you all the more. And, Lord, we know we, we cannot truly love you unless we do know you. And, Lord, we pray that uh, as you've disclosed yourself to us in the pages of scriptures and the person of Jesus, that uh, we would see you more and more clearly for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Simonides, or Simonides, a heathen poet, being asked by Yero, king of Syracuse, what is God? Sorry, when I hear Syracuse, I think of New York. This is not New York. I think it's Spain. Desired a day to think about it. And when that was ended, he desired two. And when they were passed, he desired four days. Thus, he continued to double the number of days in which he desired to think of God before he could give an answer. Upon which the king expressed his surprise and asked him what he meant by this strange behavior. To which the poet answered, The more I think of God, he is still the more unknown to me. And of course, that is always, I don't want to say the danger because it's not, it's a little dangerous. Uh, that is always what is going to happen. The more we learn about God, the more we understand about his absolute infinity and perfection, and the more we recognize that we will never know everything about him. Um, so I've added seven rectangles, and I want you to notice this. We've got one and three here, three incommunicable attributes of God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable and beneath which are seven. There's no um, coincidence here. This is all very intentionally put together uh, by the Divines. Well, that should be the name of this class, the Judson Divines. There you go. Sounds like a singing group. <laughs> You're right. A very cute little singing group. Singing group slash cult. I don't know. So, so we have... Uh, uh, we want to talk a little more about unchangeable. We didn't quite put a bow on that. Um, we talked about God's relenting slash repenting and how it almost appears at first glance to be God changing, and yet this is part of God's self-disclosure. By saying, I'm a holy God and I can destroy you, and then based on his covenant, not based on leniency or looking the other way, but based on his covenant saying, I won't destroy all of Israel and start over with you, Moses. He reveals that he is not um, completely guided by wrath against sin and holiness, like so many of the so-called gods of the day were. They were just wrath, and you had to appease them and appease them and appease them, and they were hard to appease and quick to flip on you. And he's, in, he's a God of love. And so he, he's, he's showing who he is in that sort of interaction. Um, it, it just in the same way that God can be said to 
move his arm, we're going to see in a moment. That's anthropomorphizing God, giving him body shape that he doesn't have. He doesn't have an arm, God the Father, God is spirit. And yet, we understand that language. And when we read God relented, perhaps this is anthropopathizing God, giving him kind of the human emotions and interaction, because that's the way we can understand him. This is what John Calvin said about this sort of thing, is when God discloses himself to us, it's like a mother lisping to her infant. Everyone here but Sean, if, if we brought a, a cute little baby in, we'd be like, oh, and start talking to this baby in some just bizarre language that we all kind of intrinsically know, um, but isn't full-on language, right? I mean, I, I, I've known some people who will talk to their, child, their, their infants because they read this is good and they'll, you know, really complex sentences and things, uh, but they're, they're tamping down that desire to try and get down on the kid's level and connect. And when you get, you know, a kid gets to like Levi's age, right? About three, you, you have to start using words that aren't quite the right word and learn this language that's just, it's little kid language. And in the same way, God comes down, he condescends, he comes down. And of course, the greatest example is the person of Christ literally coming down to be with us. But even in the Old Testament, he comes down to our level and talks to us in kind of baby talk because otherwise we won't understand. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And if he was just to say, Richard, here's what I'm thinking today and unload on you, you would not know what to do with it. Uh, and so it'd be like opening up, you know, the Ark of the Covenant and your head explodes. There, there's too much there. So yeah, we, we do see relenting, repenting. Uh, but as we said, it's, it's God's uh, self-disclosure. It's, it's God's revealing of himself. Um, and, and Sean brought up the example of Christ seeming to change his mind as he's walking along uh, the road and the Syrophoenician woman comes and he, he says to her, no, no, I'm here for the lost sheep of Israel, and then seems to kind of backtrack on that. This week, this thing, I don't know if you saw this, this on Twitter, this was a huge hot button issue because somebody famous in non-evangelical Christianity uh, said, well, it's so clear to me that Jesus was brought up racist and then he saw the value in this person and he changed his mind. Uh, and he grew and he, as a person and he got better. Um, no. Nope. And no. Uh, so this is uh, always a topic of discussion and we can misunderstand it if we don't remember God's incommunicable attributes. Somebody, would you look up Psalm 106 for me, verses 42 through 45? And somebody else at the same time, flip over to James 1.7, and that will uh, finish up our discussion of unchangeable. Psalm 106. 42 to 45. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him in their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and he remembered for them his covenant and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. He remembered his covenant. Again, that's this anthropopathizing uh, in which we say, oh, God calls to mind something. If you're omniscient, everything is always in RAM, right? I mean, you're always calling to mind everything. God is all-knowing. But 
this idea of him calling to mind and choosing to act on particular things is woven throughout the scriptures. And it's generally his own covenants and promises that he calls to mind. And so I think that's a very good answer to what do we do with God changing his mind, God relenting, God shooving, repenting. Uh, he's using it as an opportunity to teach them about covenant and reveal something about himself. Uh, and Aaron, would you do me a favor while someone reads James 1, 17 and fill those boxes with the last seven um, attributes on the, the page there? Here, you can borrow this. Okay, I thought maybe you were tricking me. Well, you have it, the answer right in front of you. That's the beautiful thing about the catechism. It keeps its... Gives you the answers. Okay, uh, who's got James 1, 17? Uh, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Am I the only one who always hears that now in Lecrae's voice? Um, and you did a lovely job, Sam, but he's got a lot of gravitas right. with it. You should have done a, I'm glad you didn't do an impression of Lecrae, because again, a lot of people are hearing these classes, and that could <laughs> go badly for you, but... Um, it can be misunderstood. Uh, re read, read that one more time because I've just ruined it. Every gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Shadow due to change. Anyone remember what the King James says? There is no shadow of turning, which finds its way into some of our hymns, which I think is a beautiful phrase. And so the notion is that, that the sun is moving across the sky and, you know, you watch these time-lapse things. Shadows are just moving all over the place. Things are changing up and all this stuff. But with God, there is not even a change in his shadow. There is no change whatsoever. God is unchangeable. And that should be a great comfort to us. If he was changeable, then, I don't know, maybe he would stop loving us tomorrow. And if he was changeable... Perhaps he would not call to mind his promises to us. And so, thank God that he is unchangeable. So, let's read that answer again. I don't know if I still have the page in front of me. Yeah. How's that go? What is God? God is? Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, Holiness, justice, justice goodness, goodness, and truth. So, here is spirit, right? God is spirit, as St. John tells us. And he is, that spirit is, these three incommunicables, uh, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. They belong only to God. And then we have this, this prepositional phrase, in his. The way this works and it's kind of messy, and these should be dotted lines, but I'm just going to make solid lines for time's sake. you got to draw, and I'll put a picture of this on the, the website too so people can see, a line from each of these three to each of these seven. All right, let me do a quick boom, 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 boom. So we can say then, that God is, first of all, right? Yahweh, God is. God is spirit. He is 
And then you can start mixing and matching. It's a fun little game. Infinite in his justice. He is eternal in his being. He is unchangeable in his truth. He is eternal in his truth. He is infinite in his truth. You see how each of these incommunicables applies with the in his phrase to each of these seven areas of God's character, seven um, spheres. So in each sense, God is infinite. In each of them, he is eternal. In each of them, he is unchangeable. As you can see, it is literally, I mean, not literally impossible, but it would probably take a couple years for us to do all of these, right? <laughs> it gives you, uh, I guess it gives you 21 individual topics to talk about how God is infinite in his being, how he's infinite in his wisdom. So let's just kind of dip in and talk about a few of them. Uh, and, and maybe you will want to bring up some. I will want to bring up some. And at the end of it, we will just kind of all be able to stand back again in awe and say, wow, God is really amazing. So God's being is first. And again, that fits because God's primary attribute seems to be that he is. And I say primary in that that's the one that is emphasized in his name, in the title for himself that he gives to Moses. And it's what sets him apart from everyone else. We exist at his pleasure. He exists by his very nature and sets him apart from all the other gods who don't exist at all except in the minds of their uh, servants. The, uh, here's a quote from, from Goodwin. The true name of being, capital B, is proper to God only. The creatures are in themselves but shadows and appearances of being. God alone is. That's Thomas Goodwin. He's a 17th century Puritan. You should read his stuff. It's all like that. But yet, Yahweh comes from the word for to be. Uh, the title that he gives to Moses, tell them, Ehyeh, Esher Ehyeh, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you, or I will be. I will always be. What, what uh, in fact, being in the imperfect, rather than, it sounds like a future tense, I will be. Uh, later on, I'll be this. No, it's in the imperfect, meaning it's not complete. God is always. He's never done being because that's his very nature, is always to be. Uh, can someone flip over to Hebrews 11.6? If you did, you'd find, He that cometh unto God must believe that he is. The first thing you got to believe in order to come to God is that he is. His being, and, and you might say, well, duh. Many people might want, I'm not quite sold on this God being infinite, being eternal, being unchangeable, uh, and yet want to have a relationship where they kind of pick and choose cafeteria style, which attributes, well, God being infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being is the, the beginning of these things, and you can't skip it. Um, but we can skip now to wisdom. What is the difference between, say, wisdom and knowledge? Okay. It is. When you're reading the book of Proverbs, they talk about both. So you got uh, chokmah, wisdom, da'ath, knowledge, and they're not used as completely separate, uh, divided things, but they're not perfectly synonymous by any stretch either. What do you think, Erin? I think that knowledge is something uh, that you can know the facts of something, but wisdom is how to apply knowledge okay. to situations. 
I, I think you're definitely on well down the right track. <laughs> wisdom seems to imply, well, no, never mind. That's a discernment in a way that you know something, you're able to interpret that mm, knowledge yeah. and apply it. Well, you say, you say growth, but remember, Jesus is said to grow in wisdom and stature, but you also know that you can grow in knowledge. Right? I mean, when you learn things, you're growing in knowledge. Wouldn't wisdom be like the proper um, application of knowledge? Ooh, that's a good little definition. The proper application of knowledge. Now, if we wanted to take Bernard's uh, illustration with the GPS, you know what buttons do what, but if you're trying to use it to like tune in the U of M game, you don't have the, the wisdom in that situation. That knowing how to apply the knowledge. Okay, and certainly the way that the word is used, both wisdom and folly, and especially the Old Testament wisdom literature, it, there's a moral sense. So even when you get to the New Testament, Jesus says, um, if anyone says you fool, he's in danger of hellfire. That word fool there, there's a baggage to it, moral baggage. Not just you're dumb, that was the rakah, but also you're kind of bankrupt morally. Your character is, is empty. So there, there's a, a moral aspect to wisdom as well. Uh, so not just a pragmatic ability to properly apply the knowledge. Like I learned you know, C++, but now I'm going to really make some software. But also wisdom implies uh, a, a moral application of it, a way, a, 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 applying wisdom or knowledge in a way that pleases God. Uh, and so we talked about infinite being often associated with space. It's not all that it is, but it, that's a big part of it. Uh, and and uh, answering to omnipresent, right? Eternal often being exclusively associated with time. Here we might say God's infinite wisdom would be where we would find God's omniscience, knowing, knowing all. God's uh, infinite wisdom, uh, his omniscience tells us that he knows everything, not just all the data there, there are, because data is plural, if you want to be really a snob about it, um, but knowing all of the hearts of all people, knowing the right thing to do in every situation, and because he is perfectly holy, uh, infinite, eternally unchangeable in His holiness, He always follows through. And sometimes you could have the wisdom to know what is the right thing to do, but not the, the righteousness or the courage to carry it out. Um, that's, that's possible. So He's eternal in His wisdom. Uh, who's, who would, flipped over to Hebrews and then I scripture jacked you? Um, Hebrews 4.13. Someone read that for us. And no creature is hidden from His sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All are laid bare. All are uncovered, exposed. There's, there is no succession in God's wisdom. For us, we can only think of our knowledge and wisdom in terms of how they grew. And, you know, you think of what you know, you think of who taught it to you. You think of the situation in which you learned this difficult lesson. Not God. He is infinite and eternal in his wisdom, meaning his wisdom itself is, he's unchangeable in his wisdom. It, it can't get any better. It won't get any worse. Uh, man, that sounds good. Uh, he does not learn. 
He's unchangeable in his wisdom. Duh. He does not forget. And so that theme throughout scripture about people continually forgetting their covenant with God and God continually remembering and calling it to mind uh, is just that. It's a, a rhetorical device to point out the distinction, the disparity between faithless humans and perfectly faithful God. Let's segue. Someone open up Psalm 147.5. Most of you aren't even flipping. Look at Alex is spaced out. He's thinking about God's eternal wisdom. But All right, let's hear it. You do win. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Now you see there in the Hebrew parallelism, the connection between God's great power, being mighty in power, and His eternal and infinite wisdom and understanding. The two are connected, as are all of these things. That's why when you look at it and go, that looks like a big mess of a web, that's good. Because remember we said God's attributes are His perfections, and all of them really are at the core of God's being. None of them are outliers. None of them are like, I mean, like I just did, I've done two funerals in the last couple weeks of, of two friends. Um, and what if I had gotten up and I had, I mean, like I briefly talked about how Betty Coy wore that sweatshirt with those cats on it because it makes me smile because she would always tell me which, which one of them looked like her cat. What if that's all I talked about? What if I went 35 minutes and was just like, and the sweatshirt, and I just went on and on and on about it. Just the, fa- the fact that she wore that sweatshirt, you would, have, you would not have said that was a good service, Zach, that, really, I, that, that was meaningful. No, you would have said, what are you doing? There's a little more to this woman than that she wore this. I mean, that's, that's not important. With God, you can talk about his eternal holiness for an hour, and you've talked about the core of his being. Or you could say, for the next six weeks, we're going to talk about God's justice and how it's infinite and eternal and unchangeable, and it won't seem like you're talking about, you know, this one sweatshirt that he sometimes wears that's not important. They're all important. And, and that is why I think it's so great that it looks like this. You can't untangle that, and you shouldn't be able to. We, we want, we want in, our, in our fallenness to be able to kind of untangle it and set those things about God that we like the most kind of at the top and kind of move the other things like on Wreck-It Ralph, where he locks up everyone's memory. Remember that? Maybe not. Um, lock away some of these things. But we can't. They're too enmeshed with one another. There are people who, they love that God's holy, right? They love that there's this sense of justice, and, and it kind of connects with their sense of self-righteousness. And so they take God's love, and God's mercy, and God's grace, and they kind of push them off to the side, and they just emphasize that. There are other people who say, no, 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 God's, it says God is love, right? So forget him being holy and just and hating sin. That's all passe. Let's just kind of write that off, explain it away, and focus on the... We can't do that if we have a full picture of God. Yeah. I was just going to say love is one of those. Yeah, okay. We will find love as we talk about these things. In goodness, in, and, and again, this isn't scripture. This is, whenever you say, let me describe God in one sentence, you will be lacking. You will fall short. And perhaps the Westminster Divines, as they're writing their shorter catechism, this is word for word um, here, 
perhaps where they erred was on God's holiness and, and justice. Although, as we read about uh, justification and regeneration, it will be clear that they also had a great appreciation of God's love and his mercy. But yeah, good, good point, Kim. Uh, let's, so let's talk about power. Obviously, that's where we would find God's omni potence. <laughs> He's omnipotent. I don't know who said this. I just had jotted down a quote I heard somewhere. God's power is limited only by the workings of his will. The only thing that limits God's might is, yeah, he himself, where he chooses to limit who he is. Somebody look up Mark 14, 36. Um, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus' prayer, certainly a model prayer for us, acknowledges God's infinite power and says, but it's limited by your will. And that's how we ought to pray as well, remembering that God can answer any prayer, but that we ought to submit ourselves to his will. And of course, we don't want to miss the connection to salvation here either. Uh, maybe jot down 1 Corinthians 1, to 24. Jews demand a sign. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And we, if this was a word search, we'd find half those words in that, in that one verse. Um, God's power even to save, is limited only by God's sovereign will. One more before we're done with power. Uh, Isaiah 50, verse 2. No man, why have I called with there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert. Their fish uh, stink for lack of water and die of thirst. Powerful. There are many of these poetic, over-the-top, and you can't really go over the top with God's power because it is infinite, uh, descriptions of God's might and power. Um, I think of the Magnificat as a great one. God is raising up peasants, knocking down kings. He, he's sovereign. So having infinite power uh, is... God's, uh, where we find God's sovereignty probably as well as omnipotence, uh, overlapping concepts. His holiness. What does holiness mean? Doesn't it mean set apart? Yeah. I, I remember I was in a, uh, for some reason, in college, in a pre-seminary program, I had to take this health class. I don't know. I had to like jog and eat right and everything. And I remember the, the prof standing up in front and writing the word holiness, and then underneath it writing the word wholeness with a W, and saying, this word holiness, it means wholeness. And uh, I failed the class because <laughs> I didn't want to do what many were doing and, and lie and kind of inflate what I had done. With, you know, I walked to chapel nine times this week, and there was only five chapels. But uh, so I had to take it again. I took it my senior year. I just put it off. And I'd had all of my theology and I had all this. And she wrote that. 
And uh, I said, no, it doesn't. It does not mean that. I'm lucky I didn't fail the class again, now that I think about it. But uh, it, it means set-apartness, separateness. Holiness is separateness. Um, Revelation 4.8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, 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 the thrice holy God, that is a reference to His infinite holiness, was and is and is to come, His eternal holiness. And when you're that holy, there's no changing the, the holiness levels, his, his unchangeable holiness. What about Revelation 15, 4, though? Read this, somebody, with, with this question in mind. Is God's holiness perhaps incommunicable? Should we elevate that up one level, even though it would turn the perfect three into a four? Uh, Revelation 15, verse 4. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made manifest. Thou only art holy, or you alone are holy. Does that mean then that holiness is something that only God can have? Is it like infinite, eternal, and unchangeable? Isn't that something we receive through Christ, though? So how is it that in the Revelation we hear that He alone is holy? He's holy in, in and of Himself. Right? We have to have it, um, what do you call it imputed to us. Mm -hmm. We have to have it given to us. We're not holy in and of ourselves. We're only holy because of our connection to Christ. So because we're connected to God, we're made holy. Exactly. Yeah. So God's holiness is perfect, and it's sourced in himself. In fact, we could probably tie this being also to all these and make the web all the more complicated. And I'm sure we could do a lot more of that as well, back and forth. But... His wisdom is rooted in his being, not sourced somewhere in, in some other person or place. His power, it doesn't, he's not given power from on high. Like when Jesus tells Pilate, you've been given authority from someone above you, and I don't really answer to you. Um, his holiness, it's in himself. That's why we can read, you alone, you alone are perfectly holy. You alone are the holy one, but we can share in that holiness. And we can say that about all these things. Our goodness, it's rooted in Him. Our truth is rooted. In fact, when we say our wisdom and our knowledge is rooted in Him, perhaps the original sin was throwing that off. No, 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 no. I can become like God, and I'm the source of my wisdom. I become what's right and wrong. It comes from inside me. Yeah, that works really well. Read the book of Judges. So, yeah, that's, that's exactly why... We read passages like that, that God alone is holy. He's the holy one. But we are called to be holy ones. In fact, in the New Testament, what are Christians called? Well, your translations will usually say saints. But the word in the Greek is simply the word for holy in the plural. 
Uh, it's called a substantive, meaning that an adjective becomes a noun. Um, we do that. The homeless. The homeless ones. That's, a, that's an adjective, but when you use it in that way, it becomes a noun. In the same way, the holies, the holy ones, that's us. So we are called to be holy, and we're called to find our holiness in Him. And the God we serve is the only one who is truly and perfectly holy. It doesn't contradict. It perfectly complements each other. Uh, and this all comes, you know, th this concept, you trace it back through the scriptures into the, the notion of kadosh in, in the Old Testament. Uh, and this is what uh, I think Kaylor Bumgardner, my favorite Hebrew lexicon, how it defines this basically, withheld from ordinary use, treated with special care, belonging to the sanctuary. So a holy vessel was in God's presence in the sanctuary. You would not go and put like some, you know, rock and rye in it. In fact, uh, that, that leads to the downfall of a king of the Medes and Persians, right? Hey, bring in those holy vessels that we stole. Let's fill them with wine and have a party. Bad move there, Skippy. So things touching the altar, warriors in a campaign, these things that are a priest and his garments, these things are holy. And we're called to be holy. Alex, what was the... Let's see if we can do it again. What was that passage you pulled out like a month ago on a Sunday night from Jude about the garment? I don't think that was me. It was totally you. <laughs> Jude's short. Just Hating even the garment stained by sin or something oh, yeah. that... Yeah. Um, the notion of our despising sin so deeply that we don't want to say, there's the line, let me see how close I can get to it. But rather, there's the line, I hate everything on the other side of it. Let me run the other direction to the cross and to God and find my holiness in Him. Verse 23. Jude, verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Nice. Yeah, the garment stained by the flesh or the sin nature. Um, so even something that's, you know, and, and that goes back to the Old Testament, right? The, the idea that a garment had to be holy and set apart, which is why when Jesus is like, yeah, finally, you've said it. That's me. And the high priest wants to make a big deal out of things. What does he do with his garment? He tears it because it has now been stained by the blasphemy being in the presence and it can't go into the sanctuary of God. Well, that wasn't blasphemy, but when we uh, you know, hate sin so much, we'll have that same sense of, I, I don't want even something that's touched, something unclean, to come into my presence. Now, that's not an excuse to bivouac ourselves off from the world and live in this Christian bubble. Christ's commands and his example point us in the other direction, but we do want to be uh, very much uh, rooted in Christ's holiness and unwilling in any way to compromise it. So this, I mean, this ties into penal substitution, the notion that when Christ died, he was paying for your sins, my sins, because his holiness cannot be separated from who he is. His justice cannot be separated from who he is. And so when he dies on the cross, there is now merit for you and for me. That segues us nicely into justice. Deuteronomy 32.4. 
He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And look at that. That has both holiness and justice. Upright and just is he. Unlike us, God does not need relation to be just, right? If somebody lives on a desert island, you might say, well, that guy is very patient as he waited for someone to come and rescue him. Or he was very faithful in praying every day for three hours a day. But you wouldn't say, that guy really, he had a passion for justice on that island. Well, there's nobody else, right? God in and of himself is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice. He's perfectly upright and just. He is the justice that we seek. And so his justice is what we seek in the law and then ultimately find in the gospel. Um, Somebody in the neighborhood of Romans who could get to Romans 2 quickly? Is that clock accurate? Is it like 17 after? Yes. What time does the choir need to leave? Oh, okay. Romans 2, what did I say? 12 to 14? Does that seem right? Yes, that's it. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. So Romans is in the midst of this project here of starting with uh, Jews or Gentiles and then Jews and then everybody and showing how no one is righteous, right? So, uh, and it it gets to chapter four where it's really, really hammered in. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. All together have become useless, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at this point, he's, he's saying, listen, either you are unrighteous and not just under the law because you've broken it or apart from the law because you're ignorant of it. Either way, our justice, it relates to the law and our holiness, it relates to the law. It relates to God and what he has revealed to us and his character. God's justice is just his. It does not need to relate to anything outside of itself. Now, why is this super important? Because Almost every week of my life, I come across somebody saying, well, why is this God of yours in the Bible the good guy even? That happened to me just a few days ago. Somebody uh, private messaged me on Facebook and said, I saw something that you posted and I had been reading the Bible and God does this stuff. You know, he's telling these armies to go in and destroy this town in the Old Testament. And I thought, is this guy even the good guy or is he the bad guy in the story? And we are standing here saying, well, we have a sense of right and wrong and justice and goodness that we've been given from God, which we then in our own hearts have perverted. Uh, and we stand there with this thing and point back to the source of it and say, he doesn't measure up. It's so absurd uh, to, to say, I see God doing something unjust or unrighteous, something that's not holy, is like, it's, I can't even think of a a good analogy. I should have before I started talking, maybe last night or something. It's like, it's like saying, you know, that 
that freezer, I walk in there and, you know, it's running and everything's frozen, but I don't find any coldness in here. You know, I, I, it, it, it's, I'd struggle to come up with an absurd enough corollary to it. It's, it's just so bonkers. And so the answer, it's never satisfying to the sinful hard heart that God himself is justice and God himself is goodness should tell us that whatever we find God saying and doing in his word is just and is good. It's, in fact, infinitely just, eternally just, and unchangeably just and good. Do you think it can only be understood in terms of the other attributes in that line? Like, is that true of maybe all of them? I don't know. But, like, it seems like you can't really understand justice the way God is just unless you understand holiness, you know? Mm-hmm. And if somebody doesn't understand holiness, then they're never going to get how God is just. Yeah, and I think you see that when you bring <clears throat> the gospel, because God's justice is so lifted up on the cross. You see God's wrath against sin right there on display where you see God's love for sinners equally on display. That's where you see those two things the most. And when somebody brings the gospel with just the kind of, look how much God loved you, and there's no sense of God's holiness, so I was separated from him, and God's justice, so I must be punished for my sin, just Jesus chose to die to show you how much he loved you. You know, we're going to talk about atonement theories in a few questions, uh, maybe more than a few, and most of them are, they're just inadequate because they sound like you know, a fan fiction written by a 13-year-old girl. I loved Edward the Vampire so much, I threw myself off a cliff. All right, well, that didn't help Edward. Um, you know, unless God's, uh, the, the sacrifice of God the Son on the cross actually reconciles the world to himself, it means nothing. If it's just showing me how much he loves me or an example for me, so the example is just get yourself killed, even though it accomplishes nothing but becoming an example, that doesn't make any sense. So I think you're right, and I think you probably, ultimately, we could probably put at least, you know, three more rows of seven of these things down here, right? Um, starting with love uh, and mercy. Um, and, and each of them, it's informed by all the others. God, God is, one of his perfect attributes is that he's perfectly simple. Uh, and you think, wait a minute. What did you call God? Watch out, lightning's going to get you. And the notion there is that he's not comprised of parts. And it's kind of an important attribute because people often misunderstand the Trinity of being like, Father's a third, son, like Voltron, right? You click them all together and you've got the whole thing. Now the lightning might come. But God's simplicity doesn't mean that you can easily kind of grasp who he is. It's, it's you will, if you're saved five million years from now, you're still going to be going, Wow, learned something new about God today. And like uh, the uh, Simon Simonides, <laughs> Simonides, uh, you're, you're going to say, the more I learn about him, the more I realize I still have to learn about him. And that's great. And when you come across a teacher or a preacher or someone on the radio or YouTube or whatever who seems to kind of imply, I've got this God figured out, Turn it off, unsubscribe, run away, throw away that computer, bury it in your backyard. It's tainted now, hating even the laptop stained by the flesh. Um, because we, we can't. 
there, there will always be more. But, but we can know that what he has revealed is true. Bart had this interesting understanding that, that there is no more to God than what is revealed in the Bible, which God's word is kind of activated within the Bible rather than the Bible being God's word, but that you could go infinitely deeper into it so that God's, God's shown us kind of the width and breadth of who he is, limiting himself by his own character and will, but we can always go deeper and deeper down that tunnel. It's actually 3D if you look at it, you know, and, and see that it goes on forever. And so the scriptures are, now that looks like a sewer. Sorry, that doesn't work. But, but that you can go infinitely deeper. I don't, I don't know that I see what he's doing and I appreciate it, but I don't know that I, I would sign that document. But ultimately, we know the things that God reveals about himself are true. Um, we've got three minutes. Let's talk about goodness. I love that the word God in the old Saxon is identical with the word good. This is uh, a attribute, a, a perfection of God, his goodness. God is the good one. He is goodness personified. And when Richard Dawkins, you know, slams out 19 50 cent words in a row to describe how God is a hateful, malevolent, fear-mongering, uh, you know, homophobic, misogynistic, blah, 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 xenophobic monster, um, He's literally as far off from describing the God of the Bible as you could be. And yet, ironically, sort of sitting up in a prominent chair saying, I can be your source of information about this God. I have the knowledge and the wisdom. No. Uh, Psalm 119.68, you are good. And what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. This is why David delights in the law even though the law is like hard because God is so good and what he does is good and what he decrees is good. Unlike us, again, God does not need relation to be good. You say, this person's good. Okay, how? They're kind to their neighbors. They're, they don't, you know, they, they take in stray dogs. I mean, what? You, you have to have some relation to something or someone else, not God. God is good. I love the, uh, there's a Pentecostal liturgy, the only one I know of. It goes, God is good. And then everybody else says, all the time. Absolutely, God's eternal in his goodness. That is a, a trustworthy and true saying. God is good all the time. From one of the catechisms on the catechism, the fact that I love these tells me that I am a nerd. Like, this is my nerdiest thing. And I, and I collect palm pilots. <laughs> How is the goodness of God displayed in the creation of man in particular? Answer? In making him after his own image, furnishing the world with such a variety of creatures for his use, giving him dominion over them, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, and in entering into covenant with him. That's God's, God's goodness is just everywhere in the Bible. I mean, if we think of it as a book of covenants. There's God's goodness uh, right up in the, in the trophy case. Uh, so... I would say faithful and loving might be seen as kind of subsets of goodness. The scriptures do seem to tie those things together. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It's one of those three in Arthur's statements, God is love. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So even if they know the holiness and they really could get on board with killing them some Midianites, and they know the power, and they like to even kind of meditate on how big God is and look up into the sky and think about how small they are, and they like the notion of wisdom. Remember, the Greeks seek wisdom, but they don't know God's love. They haven't seen it there on the cross. And so you have to have a certain full picture, never completely full, but a certain understanding of who God is before you can encounter him in the way where he saves you and you have then a relationship. Uh, it's already a personal relationship. That whole hangman condemned relationship is, is personal, even though he's wearing a mask, this, this, this hangman. Uh, with, with God, you stand before God no matter what, face to face, no mask. And it's a personal relationship. The difference is when we know who he is and we submit to who he is and we repent of our sins and we believe in him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead, then that personal relationship becomes one of father and son, father and daughter, uh, a relationship of blessing. So next week we will talk about truth and then we are going to knock out five and six in one week. Otherwise, this is literally going to take several years. <laughs> Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. Uh, we thank you for the web that we see when we try to map out who you are. How, how silly of us to think we could fit you on a whiteboard. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would never uh, think that we can begin to exhaust even one of your attributes. But Lord, that we would know that we can learn more and more about you. Lord, maybe be humble when we speak of you and know that we're all of us getting something wrong because we've misunderstood the scriptures or we've made them say what we wish they said as we interpret them. Lord, may we humbly seek your face and come to know more about you uh, every time we encounter you in your word, every, every day as your spirit leads us, Lord. We pray that we would uh, continue to just marvel at your unchangeable, infinite, eternal power and holiness and being and all of the rest. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.